Well, within the last few minutes, we've just found out that there is no going back, that the Leave campaign have clinched the number of votes that they've needed to gain the majority. The Remain campaign can do no more. So it will be a Brexit for the UK. The country actually got together, got behind it and said, no, that's it. We, we, we voted, democracy won. And it's a great, booming victory for democracy. And that's what all this is about. Five and a half years ago, one of the most seismic geopolitical shifts of the millennium. And it was just a matter of days before the aftershocks rippled their way to this side of the world. That should be a lesson to to, people in democracies everywhere around the world to pay attention to ordinary people's needs and desires that they are, after all, critical to the economic and social future of any country. In terms of New Zealand's position of access for people and goods, I'm quite confident that position is okay. I think I share the Prime Minister's view. Um, The fundamentals of the relationship are very strong. But out of their adversity comes our opportunity. One of the negatives of what has just happened is that that's probably going to complicate that negotiation with the EU, but uh, it does open up a uh, new option vis-a-vis the UK, and I would anticipate that we will be moving quite quickly to try and explore opportunities with the UK as well. Half a decade on, it's been a long road, but finally, late last month, results. I am delighted to announce today that following a conversation with Prime Minister Johnson last night, New Zealand and the United Kingdom have agreed in principle an historic, high-quality, comprehensive and inclusive free trade agreement with the United Kingdom that will eventually eliminate all tariffs on New Zealand exports. Jacinda, I just want to say this is a, this is a big moment for, for the UK and for our partnership with, with New Zealand. And we're absolutely thrilled that we seem to have driven for the line. Uh, we've scrummed down, we've packed tight, and uh, we've, together we've got the ball over the line. Kia ora, I'm Emile Donovan. And today on The Detail, New Zealand has secured an in-principle free trade agreement with the United Kingdom. It's been hailed by politicians and exporters alike. But then again, of course it has. They're the ones who are selling it to us. So what's actually in this free trade agreement? Is it as good as it seems? And a big change has been snuck in, which could have a huge impact on the rights of Kiwi writers and musicians and artists. Why? And what does all of this, in principle, carry on mean? Is the deal done or not? Basically, there's still a few little bits and pieces to be ironed out, um, a few minor details. Sam Suchdeva covers foreign affairs and trade for newsroom.co.nz. But it's both sides going, look, we've got the guts of this. You know, whatever's left to be dealt with, we don't think it's going to be any major obstacle. So, yeah, we're, we're pretty happy with this. We've got, a, we've got a deal. We can get it across the line. We just need to, yeah, get some of the minutiae out of the way. Could things change dramatically here? Or, or is this pretty much, you know, it's a done deal and we just need to sign on the dotted line now? It, it would be unlikely, I think, to see any major changes. Um, you know, having said that, sometimes things can drag out a little bit between the agreement and principle and actually signing you know you can have unexpected things pop up or you know what you thought might be might be easy to wrap up takes a little bit longer but i, w- I wouldn't see this sort of yeah spiking the agreement or any huge overhaul of, of the debt that's just um yeah putting the, the cherry on top i guess all right so dumb question what is a free trade deal 
no, it's it's a fair, totally fair question. So you you kind of have standard rules that apply through the World Trade Organization. So that sets it out for everyone, you know, for any country that doesn't have a special deal. But I guess the idea is that, look, maybe you have a special relationship with another country or a good reason to build closer ties and you say, look, we can actually do better than the, um, the standard rule. So let's let's talk it out. Let's let's sort of make a deal that's a bit more specific to what we need, um, you know, what, what our main products are and how we benefit. And likewise, you know, the other countries, the UK in this case, they can sort of be a bit more specific about, you know, how their businesses benefit from um, trading with us. So it's, it's yeah, just going a little bit above and beyond the standard trade rules that are in place and, and um, yeah, having a little bit more sort of specificity and, and uh, greater benefit. Okay, so like the WTO lays out minimum trade requirements for countries to trade with each other and then if you have like special friends in the world, then you can negotiate deals that mutually benefit both of you. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, that's, that's certainly the idea and in, in, in principle at least. Cool. All right, let's talk about the meat and potatoes of this agreement. What would you describe as being the, you know, the the, the big headlines that came out of this? Uh, you know, as always with a New Zealand FTA, it's about access for our producers of meat and potatoes, you know, the agriculture sector. It just gives us opportunities to, to, to assess flexibility, uh, optionality, and, and we'll obviously move, move products to where the returns are. Uh, and on the face of it, the UK looks good. Dairy and beef and sheep meat, uh, you know, there's a pretty good market access there in, in terms of dropping tariffs on our on our products. So that's kind of where the, the big wins are really, and a lot of the focus goes. There are other interesting interesting parts to it, but that's kind of the guts of the deal, and that was where probably the hardest negotiating took place, I think, between the New Zealand negotiators and the UK, making sure we got something that um, you know Kiwi exporters could be could be happy with. Mm. Mm. Yeah, because that is a point of tension, really, isn't it? Stemming from farmers in the UK, correct, who don't want New Zealand to get too good a deal because then the UK will just import their meat and dairy from New Zealand and they'll be out of work. Yeah, that's right. So it's the, the British fear, and this is not me saying it's correct, the British fear is that you'll have a flood of cheap, substandard product that comes in and sort of forces all the local farmers out of business. And that hasn't really been borne out. You know, then that comes up every time New Zealand's involved in a negotiation, more or less, just because we are, you know, so focused on dairy agriculture in our, in our export trade. But we, we, in reality, we've never had the scale or the ability to produce enough product to... Uh, yeah, to force local local producers out of business. But that's that's why it always takes a while to, to work it out because you've kind of got to convince the negotiators and then actually the, the other government has to convince their own local businesses that, hey, this is not going to wreck you, don't worry. We're, you know, we've got your interest in mind as well. Mm-hmm. Okay. So what is the situation with tariffs on, on New Zealand exports into the UK? What, um, what will change once this agreement is signed? The headline figure that the two sides have put out is that 97% of product lines will have tariffs removed as soon as uh, pen is put to paper. And that's a little bit, I mean, that is accurate, but the important part is the 3% that is going to be sort of staged in or some of it, that makes up a large amount of what we actually send over there. So they're going to take a little bit of time to remove all the tariffs on beef, lamb and dairy. So in reality, it's I think it's about 63% of our exports, they've said, that are going to be tariff-free immediately, and about 35%, I think, that'll sort of kick in over 5 to 10 to, to 15 years. So, yeah, more, more than half lose all the tariffs to start with, which is good, but a little bit more time for the rest. 
Okay, that's good to get because I was confused by that because I'd seen that 97% figure and that 63% figure and stuff like that too and it had confused me. So it's it's what? It's 97% of all of the individual products that we export to the UK but 63% of the, the, the volume of stuff that we export there. D- does that make sense if I got it right there? Yeah, no, that's pretty pretty much my understanding and yeah. it can, can be a little bit confusing. It took me a while to get my head around it as well but that's that's as, as best as I can and can figure it out that it's yeah, sort of 97% of all the theoretical goods we have if we imported them all equally but the fact is that, you know, we've got, uh, you know, we, we are unusually weighted towards particular goods and those are the ones where um actually it's going to take a little bit longer because we we supply so much so we have talked tariffs another big issue was what would happen with regard to visas and particularly working holiday exchanges but there was no concrete announcement on that yeah a little bit vague so they've kind of kicked the can down the road on that so they've they've said look we've agreed to go away and start a dialogue is their term on um, mobility arrangements. So that's basically people-to-people flows, and that includes the working holiday visa. But, yeah, they, they didn't get it across the line in, in this agreement. So, you know, could could be some good news to come, um, but we, we just don't know yet. That's basically going to be a little bit while away, a little bit of a while away. Anything else in there that we would consider, you know, pretty big from our point of view, or, or does that cover off the, the major stuff in New Zealand? Uh, the market access, the agriculture stuff, is is the huge point countrywide. What is also interesting, though, there's a um, they've agreed to produce a chapter around indigenous trade, Māori trade, which is uh, is pretty big. It's the first one like that that we've had since our agreement with Taiwan. We normally have a a general treaty of Waitangi clause that gives us an exception from the FTA rules to protect our treaty of Waitangi obligations, but this is going to go a little bit beyond that. Um, and that's kind of a, a bit, been a big push of this government. They had their trade for all process where they were saying, you know, look, we need to make sure that the benefits of trade go to everyone and not just to, you know, certain parts of the country. Mm. Uh, the devil was going to be in the detail there, though. They've only they've agreed to develop a chapter. They haven't actually written it yet, so it seems like there's a bit more um, work to go in. But, uh, yeah, you know, depending on what comes out of that, that could be quite significant for Māori businesses and in New Zealand, um, and otherwise, uh, there are some pretty strong commitments in there apparently around environment and uh, labour markets, which are two other things that we've been quite focused on. Climate change comes up as well, so I think that's what uh, New Zealand wants to sort of see as well in terms of some of the symbolic or, or regulatory benefits. But in, in terms of pure money, money if, if you look at it that way, then it is about agriculture and uh, and the market access in that regard. New Zealand after Australia is the second country to secure a free trade deal with the UK post-Brexit. We talk now to the British High Commissioner, Laura Clark. So look, it's a really exciting day for the UK and New Zealand because it's this is, I think, one of the most comprehensive and ambitious trade agreements uh, that has been agreed and it really reflects the breadth and depth of our bilateral relationship. What does the UK get from us? Uh... <laughs> Not, not a lot, really. Uh, symbolic value. Um, you know, you have a messy breakup with a long-term partner, the EU in their case, and you want to show, you know, the whole, all your friends that, hey, look, we've still got it, we're still a catch. So <laughs> you, you go out and sort of throw your line out and see what comes in. So that, that, it, is a, it is a lot about symbolism. Um, Boris Johnson has talked a lot about global Britain. 
and and the branding around that. So you know, Australia was first off the block. They got their deal across the line, and that was that was quite a um, a big deal for the UK. But yeah, New Zealand is part of that, basically showing that the UK can sort of stand on its own feet as a an international trade partner and can um, can go out and 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 ink these deals. So that's that's kind of the, the big thrust of it for them. They don't get a lot out of it in direct monetary terms, but the the symbolism is, is a little bit stronger. One interesting element of this deal that hasn't been too exhaustively reported on is a proposal to extend New Zealand's copyright term. Are you clued up on, on that? What's the deal there? Yeah, it's an interesting one. I'll admit it, it took me a little bit by surprise. Possibly it shouldn't have, but I just don't, I don't recall it ever coming up in the conversations I had with, with various sources and officials leading into the... Um, the sort of conclusion of the FTA. So it's it's extending our you know copyright term from life plus fifty years to life plus seventy, which is what the um, UK has had for a while. I think it's 2013, 2014. They may have changed their own um, uh, law, domestic laws around that. So it was something similar came up during the original TPP discussions. The tougher copyright rules under the Trans-Pacific Partnership Agreement will lock up the country's cultural heritage, stymie new creations and cost the country millions. Under the current law, copyright lasts for a maximum of 50 years. But under the TPP, that will be extended to 70 years, meaning New Zealanders will have to pay an additional 20 years of royalties. That was what the US wanted, and that actually created a lot of controversy here in New Zealand. Uh, it wasn't the most controversial part of the deal, but it did attract a lot of concern because there's not really a lot that we get out of that. Before we get into all of this, a quick explanation of copyright. Anything you produce is copyrighted, so long as you put it down in some tangible format. If you whistle a tune, that is not copyrighted, but if you record that whistle tune on your phone, boom, it's yours. Having copyright basically means you exclusively decide how an idea can be used. If people like your music or your writing or your art enough to pay you for it, you can elect to sell it to them. The thing is, it's only yours for so long. After copyright expires, it ceases to belong solely to you and instead becomes the property of all of us, of humanity, like the works of William Shakespeare. This means people can take your idea and satirise it, lampoon it, morph it, without paying you royalties. Presently, the term of copyright in New Zealand is the creator's lifetime plus 50 years. But a provision in the FTA with the UK would extend this to 70 years after your death. Michael Wolfe is a copyright law expert who works at Toa Toa NZ, formerly Creative Commons NZ. This is a group which, among other things, advocates for more open access to material, essentially less restrictive copyright rules. And Michael was outraged enough by this provision to write a piece on the topic for newsroom.co.nz. It's been known for a very long time that um, <laughs> that many of our trading partners have an interest in extending our copyright term. And this came up uh, in the context of the Trans-Pacific Partnership Agreement, where the United States had made it an essential component of the deal before they, they dropped out. That bullet was dodged uh, in the context of that deal. Uh, Australia... In a, in a 2004 agreement with the United States, got it uh, in the same context in, in, in a trade deal. And the UK has the same interests as the United States on this matter. And, um, and so it wasn't unexpected. But is as part of the give and take of trade deals, it seems like the UK expects New Zealand to give on its copyright term in exchange for 
uh, some aspect of, of what's being provided in terms of access to British markets. Why do they want us to do this? How does it benefit them? In my view, it's of shockingly little benefit to anybody involved. Um, and that the price tag here is well, that it's all price and, and no reward. And you might ask, like, how does that come to be? That doesn't make any sense. Why would the UK spend all of this uh, negotiating capital on something that didn't matter to it that much? The only answer I have is just straightforward industry capture. The argument that it will do something uh, is that the UK exports a lot of cultural goods and New Zealand imports a lot of UK cultural goods. Yeah. Some of those will survive the length of the copyright term. And for those that do, uh, rather than falling into the public domain, uh, UK owners will be able to charge New Zealanders uh, money for access to those works. So uh, books that would otherwise all of a sudden be free, <laughs> on, uh, available on, and, and videos free online for anyone to use, would instead be part of a paid product. And uh, that would mean some number of dollars going to UK firms. But the reality is, first and foremost, most works don't survive that long. We have very solid... Um, empirical evidence about what how long works actually exist in the marketplace. Uh, and 70 years after the death of the author, or 70 years after creation is, is just too long relative to the actual commercial use of most things. Yeah, most so things that don't, means, don't, don't keep making money for 100 years plus. Yes. So, so the number of works that are actually providing benefits to the UK here, very marginal. Uh, and then beyond that, the number of works that New Zealand is importing that are actually owned by UK actors also... So the UK is a very important cultural hub, um, but it's, you know, probably pennies relative to American cultural exports. So it's, if anything, the US is probably a larger winner in this deal. But even then, uh, we're talking about a very limited class of works um, sending money abroad. And the price that we're paying for this is all of the stuff that is no longer making money uh, for anybody. Uh, rather than becoming part of our shared cultural heritage, gets locked up uh <laughs> on the altar of, cop uh, altar of copyright um, as a sacrifice to uh, for these very, very small handful of works. So it's a, a very marginal gain for a country like the UK. Um, it's a marginal gain for the United States. So the actual benefit here is vanishing. Uh, but the cost we're well aware of in terms of access to cultural heritage, in terms of uh, ability to use those things in creating new creative works is, is steep. I guess the only way that it really makes sense is if the UK and the USA uh, really want the global standard to be life plus 70 years, and so they're insisting on this in their trade deals despite but, it being of negligible short-term benefit because they want that to be the standard. Yes, and that, that is the only explanation, but I, the odd thing or the odd thing about all of this is when you talk to domain experts in those countries, and when you talk to people who work in the bureaucracies that are responsible for overseeing copyright in those countries, nobody thinks this is a good idea. Um, so there's a divorce between the people who are responsible for managing, uh, for managing copyright policy and people who are responsible for, responsible for negotiating trade policy. And this is true in New Zealand. If you go to uh, the Ministry for I hope I get the acronym right. Uh, uh, business in, um, business industry and employment. Is that right? <laughs> business in innovation. Uh, in innovation. Oh yeah, of course. <laughs> um, business innovation and employment. Uh, what they tell you fairly straightforwardly is that their hands are tied. Uh, is this is an instance where actually the Ministry for Foreign Affairs and Trade has said uh, in its own calculations expressly that they don't think it's 
that this is a cost. I don't. I think they underestimate the cost because they only look to the dollars that we're sending overseas and not at the cultural cost of what it means to lose these works uh, and and to lock up things that are earning nobody any money for no reason. So, uh, but but even then, they estimated it to be a significant cost. Fifty-five million dollars a year is what they guessed in the TPP negotiations, which uh, at this time those figures are quite stale. So, just to clarify, those extra twenty years of copyright will cost New Zealand an estimated $55 million per year. Uh, and so uh, the Ministry of Business, Innovation and Employment um, agreed, uh, took this off the table for the domestic copyright review because they know it's bad policy. It's not something that our bureaucrats would, would want. Uh, it, uh, it's not something that our, uh, our politicians would want. It's something that there's no consensus on remotely. And that that agreement is mirrored in every other country that, that we're talking about um, uh, who has implemented these policies. But somehow, for whatever reason, uh, the trade people feel differently. They think it's a matter of trade. Uh, they think it's a meaningful part of the trade balance, and they insist on it over the objections of domestic policymakers. So this provision is a part of this, uh, you know, signed a principle free trade agreement. Do, what, what does that mean? Is that, does that mean the deal is pretty much done? Is it too late to, to sort of remove this from the agreement? I mean, you've outlined your opposition to it. What would you like to happen, though? Yeah, it is, I, I think, the way that it's being framed to us and the, the cynic in me and the realist in me says, yeah, it, it's done. However, <laughs> of course it's not done. Um, uh, it, this is ultimately a matter of New Zealand law. Uh, and uh, our parliament has uh, has the ultimate say so here. So if um, if we wanted to change this, to challenge it, to reject it, absolutely it can be rejected. Uh, and I, I think it's um, so. I, I <laughs> I'm an advocate for uh, for calling your MP for uh, for raising a fuss. This is, in my view, it's um, just an unconscionable giveaway with enormous social costs uh, that um, was, is being forced on us because um, the expectation is we won't make a fuss. If we make a fuss, you never know what will happen. That's it for today. I'm Emil Donovan. The detail is public interest journalism funded through New Zealand On Air and produced by Newsroom for RNZ. You can get us downloaded free to your mobile device every weekday from any podcast platform. And if you're using Apple, please leave us a rating so others can find us too. Today's episode was engineered by Adrian Holley and produced by Alexia Russell. And thanks to Sam Suchdeva and Michael Wolfe. Matewa. Te